Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, my name is Dave, and I serve as the lead pastor here. I've been here uh, as a pastor since 1995, um, so it's been a while, and uh, this year, um, you know, each year I try to start optimistically, but many years it's me just trying to go, it's going to be a great year. This year I've just been overwhelmed with this sense that this is going to be an important year for a lot of people spiritually. I've been really convicted that this is a year where some people are going to have the revolution, that moment of life change where everything will resolve into clarity and they will follow the Lord in a very, very powerful way. And so I hope that that word applies to you or to somebody you care about this year. Uh, And let's just have a sense of anticipation as we start 2013. So at the beginning of the year now, we're in the second message of a short series on the subject of discipleship. And when you hear the word disciple, I don't know what you think of uh, as an Asian man, I often think about Kung Fu when I hear the word disciple, you know, about one person slavishly following another, trying to imitate them and learn their, their skills and all that. That's not actually that far off the mark from what biblical discipleship as a Christian is. It's about following Christ. And it's about imitating him, becoming more influenced by him and becoming more like him. And so I want to encourage you to think about whether or not that sort of relationship describes your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we looked at Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, and it's a passage where Jesus does a curious thing. There's large crowds following him. That's, that's by our standards today, a really good thing, right? Large crowds are, are drawn to him, but he scares them off. And the way he does it is he gives them these scary, ominous verses that are intended to shoo away the casual follower. And we're going to pick up on that theme this morning and um, build on it a little bit. The title of the message is The Importance of Total Commitment. The Importance of Total Commitment. It comes from Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. I hope it will become clear later on why he chose a picture of a man plowing a field. I want to read this passage with you. It comes out of the NIV. It says, As they were walking along the road... A man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know, in the passage I preached from last Sunday, in just that short bit of scripture, Jesus says three times to the people listening, Reasons why a person could not be his disciples. Rather than goading them on saying, hey, right on, keep the momentum going. He's saying, all right, it's great that you're drawn to me. Let me tell you what following me will not mean. 
And he says it in three different ways. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father or mother, uh, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person, what? Cannot be my disciple. And then he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And as if that wasn't uh, discouraging enough, he closes off that little teaching by saying, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a bit of a discouraging, putting off kind of message. Here are these people drawn to him. They want to follow, and all he seems to want to talk about are ways to disqualify yourself from following him. He keeps raising the bar of commitment, the high cost. But in a way, it's also refreshing because there's very little today in our world that demands much of us. And if you think about it, because there's so little that demands everything from us, we are shrinking as people. Even marriage seems like the kind of thing you could just control Z and agree to disagree and change your mind and bail out and start over again with somebody else. There seems to be very few permanent things that require a totality of commitment in our culture today. And so Jesus looks at the crowds and says, I'm glad you're drawn, but I want you to know the journey that you would begin in following me is not a journey of casual followership, but rather there is a very high cost to following me. Now, I'm going to emphasize again so you don't get the wrong picture. When Jesus talks about the high cost of following him, He's not talking about a price of admission, like a buy-in at a poker table. If you want to sit here, this is what it's going to cost you to get in the door. That's not the kind of cost he's talking about. He's also not talking about the way you would think of a price, a fair price for an item or for a benefit or a service. He's not saying the cost of discipleship is if you will pay me this much, I will give you this much. So I want to be clear on that because when we use a word like cost in the English language, it's a very loaded word. It carries a lot of preconceived meaning for us, but it's very important we get the right understanding of what Jesus means when he refers to the high cost of following him. What he's saying is this, the cost of following me is to give up everything which defines your life now so that your hands are empty to receive back in exchange the new life that I'm trying to describe to you and provide for you. It's it's maybe like this. If you think about the way a remodel works, if you look at the left, right, there's a kitchen that's not bad, but it's not great. But to get to the kitchen on the right that's awesome, there's an intermediate step that's necessary. And a lot of people really love this step. It, I have a really hard time with it. It's the demo portion of a remodel job. I never understood the relish people feel in taking a sledgehammer and breaking things. I guess some people are wired that way. I, I think it's maybe the fall of nature. Or but when I, when I see something and you just start breaking it, it bugs me a little. But that's absolutely necessary. You can't go from the left side to the right side without the middle part, can you? Because you can't just get new stuff. You've got to make room for that new stuff by getting rid of everything that in the end actually stands in the way of the vision of transformation. And that's a big, that's a good way of describing the kind of cost of disciple Jesus is talking about is you've got this life right now and clearly while there may be good parts of it, 
it's not fully satisfying. It's not the picture of the ultimate life you pictured for yourself. It is not, and you, you know it in your spirit, this is not the whole reason I'm alive. And yet now you hear the message of Christ and there's a drawing for it. I want that newness of being. I want that victory, that change. But in the process, you know that some of the things that are part of your life today are getting in the way of that change happening. Habits, thoughts, attitudes, postures that are needing to be removed so that the greater vision can become a reality in your life. And so Jesus rightly talks about the high cost of entering into the life that he offers, the life that is called real life, the life that lasts forever. Here's the thing about cost. When we talk about cost, it starts to scare people away. I think fear of commitment is a universal thing. I mean, there's probably no place as exciting as a new car showroom. The smells, the sights, the, the shiny paint jobs and all that. It's such a great place to be until the salesman approaches. Because until the salesman walks up to me, and if you're a car salesman, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to hate on you. What I'm saying is this. I go to a new car sh- showroom, and I'm filled with possibilities, and my, my mind is just soaring. I was at CarMax buying our church van, our, our church truck, and uh, I saw the Corvettes. And I know that I don't think I could ever do it. Even if I could afford it, I just couldn't do it. But I could dream. And I was looking at those Corvettes. And it's just, you start thinking, wow, all the... And you're so drawn in until the salesman comes and goes, all right, so what car can we talk about sending you home today? And you just feel the pressure rising all of a sudden. It's like, I was just looking. I was dreaming. I don't want to make a decision. I don't want to get into a 60-month payment. I don't. Can you just give me a little room? Back off, buddy. I was just having fun here. How about a relationship? A man, typically is men, really enjoying having fun in a relationship till she says something like, oh my gosh, I hope we can bring our kids here one day. And you're like, Arrgh. what'd you just say? Yeah, I hope we can bring, what do you mean kids? We're not even, and that's the point in which she goes, I got to look for the exit door. Because what I realize is it's possible to have lots of fun in a no commitment environment. But if you really want to go somewhere, you can't do it without making a commitment. It's impossible for anything substantial to take place in your life without a price, without a commitment, a cost. That's why a good salesman will always draw your eye to the benefit and to the gain. Look at this stereo. Can you, can you imagine your favorite song playing on? And they're trying to draw you to the benefits and the gains and keep your focus far away from eight ninety nine for 60 months. That's what they're trying not to get you to think about. Because the minute you start dwelling on the cost, on the commitment, your heart starts to shake and you think, well, I want that, but I don't know how bad they want it anymore. So Jesus rightly, and I think justly, focuses. He doesn't give us a snow job. He's saying, look, if you want to follow me, I'm giving you full disclosure up front, and I'm not mumbling like the guys on the TV commercials or the fine print. Oh, it might cost you your life and your freedom. And your... He doesn't do all that whole small. He says, look, I'm telling you right up front, it's going to cost you. I'm going to give you an amazing experience on this earthly journey. But in order to get it, you're going to have to trade me what you have in your hand for what I want to give you. Every time crowds followed Jesus, he turned and dispersed them by raising the price tag. There was one encounter where he met a rich, young leader. I don't know about you, but in the church leader world, that's like the holy grail of visitors. 
Check it out, man. This guy's an experienced leader. He's loaded and he's young. That means he's got 50 years of serving out of him. And everyone's like drawn to a guy like that. Come to our church. Come on, come on. Come over here. We are looking for people like you. So here's this guy who could fund and fuel and lead the vision. And Jesus' followers, his disciples are excited. Like, Jesus, come here. Check out this guy. He had like 18 camels in his entourage. And he's interested in talking to you. So they shoot away all the poor people and say, come to the front. Come meet the master. And Jesus looks at this guy. And he tries hard to tell him, look, I know you're looking for one more accessory to add to your little badge, you know, section of your shirt where you pin all your badges. That's not what this is going to be about. It's going to cost everything to follow me. And the guy just doesn't get it. He keeps going, yeah, don't worry about it. I can do all that. So finally, in one final bit to give him the truth, he looks at the man and he says, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, then, come, follow me. He's not saying this is what follow me will be like is you'll be given. He's saying first empty your hands and then come on, let's go. Let's let the real adventure begin. And at this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. The passage we're looking at this morning We're going to only spend a very short time looking deeply into the text itself because this week I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. But in the same passage we read this morning, in three separate encounters, Jesus is doing a very similar thing. He's got somebody highly motivated to follow him, but he discerned that they are ready to follow him on a misunderstanding of the terms of the contract. And so he's offering correction. To the first who says, um, hey, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, hey, that's great, but you should know if you follow me, you're probably going to end up homeless just like me. I think what Jesus is really saying here is, if you're going to follow me, you need a radical new perspective on property, on possessions, on what the stuff is that you will accrue Over the course of this life. That doesn't mean you'll have nothing. But everything you have you will hold loosely. Because this new life of following me. Will not be built entirely around what you have. And what you don't have yet. You've got to understand. That I've I've come. You know kicking and screaming to an understanding. Of this. When I was in college. My wall was festooned with pictures. From from brochures I cut out of the, the stuff I gathered. At the Chicago Auto Show. I had a poster on my wall that had a mansion, and in the garage, all the doors open were, were, were supercars. And on the bottom, it says, the justification for higher education. That's the flaky guy I used to be. I was like, dude, one day, I'm going to be a baller. I'm gonna, it's going to be sick. I'm going to have so much stuff that everyone who meets me will drool with envy. That's what I thought life was going to be about. It's not what it turned out to be for me at all. And and what Jesus is saying is he understands why someone would think that way. But if you're going to follow him, you've got to have a radically redefined attitude about stuff. And then another guy says, look, he says, follow me. But the guy says, hey, let me go and bury my father. I'm like, what, Jesus, how could you possibly have a problem with that? I mean, I hope I get to bury my dad before I got to go back to work. You know, 
you guys would understand, right? That if we were having a prayer meeting and then I had to go bury my dad, you'd be like, Pastor Dave, please, we'll take care of the prayer. Just go and bury your dad. So I'm thinking, what problem is Jesus going to have with this? Another guy pulls out another family values thing. He says, still another, says, I will follow you, but here are the deadly words. But first, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, Jesus isn't discouraging these guys because family shouldn't be important, because family values are worthless. He affirms the value of the family, but here's why he is turning these guys away. He knows what is not apparent to us right away, that these guys are excited and drawn, but they're not ready to really follow him on the terms that he's describing. And so, and he's tipped off to this because they say, we will follow, but first... In other words, this is important, but there's something more important i got to wrap up before I can give myself to you. And so what Jesus is trying to say is, if you really want to follow me, you've got to have a radical redefinition of what priorities and loyalties will look like in your life. That hasn't been easy either for those who have chosen to follow after Jesus, is that it messes up the priority structure you grew up with. It's a very strange thing to move from putting yourself first to putting a God first in everything. We may think we understand what that feels like because somebody stood in front of you Sunday after Sunday and described it or preached about it. But until you take that step and start walking that way, you don't realize how much it screws up everything. It will scramble your life if you make a practice of putting Jesus front and center first place in everything. It isn't as easy as it sounds in a sermon. It has, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm the one preaching that stuff. But there are times in our house where we're like, oh man, we know what the right thing is. Neither one of us wants to do it. And we argue and we, we negotiate and we deliberate, not because we're unclear what's required, but because what's required is not an easy thing. To follow Jesus means that above him, there is no other priority. There will never be a contest when he makes it clear, it's either me or this choice. Which will you pick? And what Jesus keeps doing for people's thing, to follow me is without negotiation to put me first in everything. Do you realize what a completely strange way that is to live, how foreign it is to most people's experience? And he says, this then is biblical Christianity. To remove yourself from the center of your life, from the throne, and place another in that, in that position. It takes a lifetime to learn how to actually practice that. But you cannot enter the journey misunderstanding that that's the goal. Those are the terms. If you think about it, the dozen men that he used most to shape the world are men who are differentiated from others mainly in this. When he said, come follow me, they dropped everything right away, and they followed him. Like every human being, they have lots of unfinished business, but unlike these other guys, these, these 12 didn't say, but first, there's this thing i got to take care of. They saw Jesus, they were compelled by him, and they said, whatever else mattered until this point in my life, I have now found the defining figure around whom I will build everything. So clearly, for Jesus, 
A total commitment is essential to the experience of being a Christian. That we cannot in the modern church invent a alternate form of Christianity, version 2.5 or whatever, in which it's possible to put ourselves first, to pay half the price and get the full experience. We can write books about it, but we cannot make it true or possible. There is really no biblical Christianity that does not rightly begin with the surrender of everything we have in order to receive from Jesus what he's extending in his hand. Like Jesus, I'm afraid that if I keep saying stuff like this, the crowds will shrink. (laughs) Because people don't want to go to a church where you keep saying stuff. They're like, there he goes again with the high-cost garbage. When's he going to preach about like 10 reasons why being a Christian is awesome or... I'm not trying to discourage anyone, but I think part of the reason that Christianity looks the way it does in America today is because we've all conspired to pretend that there's a second choice. A pseudo-Christianity that costs less but tastes great. There just isn't. And so if nothing else happens to this series, I simply want to take away from you the illusion that that fake Christianity we have produced in the church today is valid. It's biblical because it's not. It's a departure from what God wants for us, and we've got to reclaim and return to that. Now, why does commitment matter so much? If you think about it, why does total commitment matter so much to Jesus? Why is it so essential to the journey of following Jesus Christ? I could think of at least a couple reasons. One of them is I think we engage the most where we commit the most. Let me give you an illustration of, uh, <clears throat> of how that's true. I'm going to just confess to you, I, I like just about anybody you know, out there, I, I like a good game of poker. I think it's a fascinating game. The game theory behind it is really interesting, and Texas Hold'em is one of the best versions of that game, I think. And so whenever I've sat in a game or watched a game, there's a lot of drama. It's a lot of, ooh, what's going to be? And you turn the river card, and bam, the whole room explodes Those are great moments. So I figured, since I kind of dig poker, I'm sure I would like to... I've got an iPad. I've got some time to kill. So I downloaded a Texas Hold'em app for the iPad. Same dynamics, real people out there sitting at a virtual table playing the game. And I started playing. What I realized was, it stinks. This is the most colossal waste of time. The game was the same. There was still a little bit of suspense. But what I realized was it wasn't the game itself that kept me so intrigued. It's the game plus the possibility that you could win big or lose everything. You take away that little element of investment and commitment, and it's actually a pretty huge waste of time. Because after all, you're like, yes, I won 500 virtual dollars. Nothing added to my life. Lots of minutes taken away. Even when I was winning, I was losing because it was a game that had no meaning. And that's what I realized. Even though I like the game, I can't misunderstand what makes the game engaging for us. It's not the game itself, but the thrill of winning or even inveterate gamblers will tell you this. I've talked to a number of gamblers. I'm not talking about just guys who play a little. I'm talking about gamblers who've got a problem and are seeing me as a pastor. And what they'll tell me is, 
You know what's the weird thing, Pastor Dave? I felt most alive when I lost, not when I won. When I won, I was like, oh, cool, I'll just play a little. When I lost, something happened to me. I'm going to get that money back. And that's when I felt most excited, most alive, is when I lost everything and had a mortgage in my house. As sick as that sounds, that's what made me feel like going back to the casino. Losing. Now, that might sound sick, but it's actually kind of interesting how that works. That there's so little call to real commitment that in a game where we could lose our shirts, at least that simulates all-in commitment for us in our culture today. What I realized playing that app is a simulator is never as good as the real thing. You know, here's an, here's an, uh, a thing that Jesus taught. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus was saying is, you want to know where your heart's really going? It will follow your money. Where you put most of your investment, that's where you will engage most of your being. Isn't that the case? Whatever you have put everything of value into, that's the place where your heart will be most connected. And I think he's absolutely right. That's why a simulator is never as satisfying as a real thing because it hasn't cost you anything. There's no reality to the ups and the downs. It's all virtual ups and virtual downs because in the end, you neither gain big or lose big. It's just a game. Here's another game I play a lot. For some of you, I've completely lost you in the sermon at this point because now all you're thinking about is playing when you get home. This is Call of Duty Black Ops 2. Some of you, it's your drug of choice. You, yeah, Come with me. We're going to form a support group. Here's the thing, though. Okay, Some of you have actually seen real combat, had mean people actually shoot guns to kill you. I haven't. And that's why I'm a stud in this game. I, I'm Leroy Jenkins. I rush in the room. Let's go. I will shoot up the room. But you know what? I'm much braver in this game than I ever would be in real war. You want to know what I would be looking like in real war? This would be me hiding behind a brick wall, needing a diaper change, and praying. You know why I'm so brave in this game? Because it's not real life, man. It's a game. It doesn't matter. You get shot, you're like, darn! You don't say that when you're really good. You don't go, oh, darn! I try, to, I try better next time. It's a little more costly than just that. So it's easy to be frivolous in a game because it's not real. There's nothing on the line. I think that's what Christianity may be like for some people. And maybe if you're really honest before God, what you'll discover is that ever since you came to Christ, or maybe it happened sometime afterwards, this whole thing became a simulator. You went from putting your real life on the line to going through the motions and playing at it, but the ups are just kind of ups and the downs are just kind of downs because really you have your real assets in reserve somewhere else. They're protected from this other thing because this is a real game. Can you imagine how differently I'd play Texas Hold'em on my iPad if it was real money, my money on the line? How differently I'd play even paintball if instead of paint pellets, they were real bullets. When you go from simulation to the real thing, everything changes, doesn't it? So that's why those in the simulator don't understand the 
the neurotic caution of those who are engaged in the real thing. Because for those engaged in the real thing, they understand the cost and the significance of every little thing that happens. But I'll tell you something else. For those engaged in the real thing, there is an adrenaline rush and an excitement that cannot be had in simulation mode. The truth is, some of us are living simulator Christianity. If all of this is a lie, I still have a life. Remember last year I preached about plan B, living? doesn't concern me if Christianity is a lie because I still have a plan B. I've got a life anyway. I don't need this. But that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is no plan B. It's this or you've lost it all. You've bet everything on this horse. And if this horse doesn't win, you are the biggest loser there is. It's only then that you will fully engage in the journey. When Paul wrote a letter to his spiritual son Timothy describing the empty spirituality that would mark the last days, here's one of the things he said to describe people at the end. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. In other translations it said, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. I wonder if that doesn't describe some of the people who sit in churches across America this morning. I don't think God's intention is to inform us. It is to actually change us, to transform us into something else. And you can't get that happening in a simulator. Here's another reason why I think this all-out total commitment is so essential to the process of following Christ, is because true transformation requires total immersion. Think about it this way. No significant change ever happened in your life through casual commitment. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, um, with 2013, becoming more physically fit has, has coming to New York was one of my stated priorities. Stated priorities, I emphasize. It's not one of my practical priorities. The thing is, on any given day, depending on how much water I drink or whatever, I will fluctuate. Like the other night, I went to bed at 159.5 pounds. I woke up 150. I lost five pounds sleeping. I was like, did I wet the bed or something? What, what happened there? So you fluctuate a little bit just from nothing. Life will cause a little up, a little down. But you really want to bulk up or lean down, if you want to have any significant change, it will never happen flirting with it, will it? Some of you have had some goals that have haunted you for a while. You've been talking about it, wishing for it, wanting it. But the truth is, for years, it has eluded you. The pictures, the ideas are very enticing. They grip your heart. But until it translates to a significant commitment, you will never, ever get there through a partial commitment. What in your life has ever happened significantly by flirting with something? I mean, really think about it. Have you ever seen great significant gains or losses in anything that you were just superficially engaged in? Nothing. Not relationships, not education, not career, not health. Everything significant 
requires a totality of commitment to see the sort of change or difference that we dream about. There are, there are reasons why Jesus says a totality of commitment is required because he knows that if he's going to change us, he can't do it if every five seconds he goes, hey, I'm talking, pay attention, listen. Have you ever tried to teach your kids something? <laughs> it's, it's like trying to catch a drop of mercury with an oily glove. It's like, look over here, daddy's talking, I'm trying to explain, why are you looking over there? Now why are you looking... Trying to keep kids' attention is very difficult. Unless you're focused, you're going to miss most of what God is attempting to show you. And he understood this. So he said, if you really want me to change you, to shape you, you can't pretend to follow me. You can't flirt with this. It can't be a superficial followership. You've got to engage everything because it's those people that will eventually get chiseled away and shaped into the people I'm calling them to become. There are numerous instances in the Gospels where Jesus makes a distinction between the crowds that follow him at a distance and the disciples who are very near to him. He repeatedly draws that distinction, and one of the ways he does it is to the crowds he preaches sermons, but to his disciples he gives their full interpretation. He gives a parable that's, that's, that's meant to provoke questions and reflections, but then it says he turned to his disciples and said, and he pulls them aside and goes, guys, come over here. Do you hear what I just said? Yes, Lord. You totally confused? Oh, yes, Lord. Well, sit down and listen. Let me tell you what I actually was saying to those people. And to those close to him, those fully engaged in following him, he, he teaches things that are not available to the crowds who are following at a distance. There is a level of embracing and identifying with and understanding something that is not available to the fan the way it is to the fanboy. The fanboy is a new phenomenon. Um, I wasted hours looking for pictures to compare fans to fanboys, and at the end I just said, it's, it's not even worth it. But it was fascinating for me to see the lengths to which some people go to identify with something that they really are into. And there's a guy who just wrote a Christian book called Not a Fan to suggest we're not supposed to be fans of God, cheering him from the stands. We're supposed to be more like fanboys, I think. Totally devoted, completely immersed in this relationship where he becomes central because there are things you can only learn when you dive into that depth of immersion. Fanboys hate when fans say things like, oh, I love Star Wars. Oh, you love Star Wars, do you? Well, let me ask you a few questions then. (laughs) And you're like, all right, fine. I just like Star Wars. I don't love Star Wars like you do because you're a freak, you know. But that's the difference. There is a level of knowing, of understanding, of saying this is me that is not available to the person who bought a T-shirt and said, yeah, I love the movie. I own the DVDs. That makes me... No, it doesn't. We're talking about an obsessive level of digging in finding out more. It's the Trekkie who doesn't just wear a Star Trek shirt to work, but he speaks fluent Klingon and proposed to his girlfriend in Klingon. That's the difference. And what Jesus says is, if you really want to know what it is about, you've got to follow me like that. Because in that kind of intense followership, you will learn things that cannot be learned any other way. 
the great Russian actor Konstantin Stanislavski, Stanislavski understood this. Do you guys know the Stanislavski method? Any actors? Yeah, I, I knew Lee would, right. He's the guy who is considered the father of method acting. Are you familiar with method acting? Here's what he said. Look, until he came on the scene, everyone believed the actor's first job was to be understood and recognized. But he said, no, that's not it. An actor's first job is to be believed. And you can't be believed unless you become a believer. You can't portray something you don't fully understand. And so he said, when you're acting, you can't just memorize the lines. You've got to delve into the true motivation, the emotional landscape you're trying to enter so that when you project it on a stage, everyone who has been in that place knows you understand. You are an insider. You're not talking about grief as one who has never grieved, but when this actor portrays a scene of grieving, everyone in the audience who has felt grief looks at that actor and says, you know me. You're not acting anymore. You are remembering. He talked about emotion memory and saying, you have to be so convinced you've been there that when you act, it's as though you actually remember and are invoking that memory to a watching audience. He revolutionized the world of acting. But then he took it a step further. In the later years of his life, he said, it's not enough just to reflect on the emotional landscape. You've got to physically experience the same things so that you are believable in your performance. When you cry, but you've never been truly sad, your tears are not believable. When you, when you act like you just ran a mile, but you didn't just run a mile, you're not believable. When, you're, when the scene says you've been up 48 hours, but you just had 18 hours of sleep, you're not believable. And so a true method actor, when he's playing a scene where he's been up for 48 hours, will stay up for 48 hours. When he plays a scene in which he's supposed to be drunk, he will get drunk in order to fully embody the experience he's trying to portray. Adrian Brody is one of the leading method actors of our generation. Method acting, to me, is a chosen form of mental illness. It's schizophrenia on demand. Because you're not just trying to get into a character. You are trying to temporarily become another being. And they go to great lengths to do it. Daniel Day-Lewis, when he was doing Abraham Lincoln, got so lost in the character, he started signing his text messages, A. That sounds to me like mental illness, but that's how deeply they identify in the role, is I don't just want to pretend, I want to become. Adrian Brody approached his craft this way since he began acting. And it, it, it won him... An Oscar. In fact, he was the youngest actor ever to win an Oscar for Best Actor for the movie The Pianist, in which he portrays the Holocaust survivor, the Jewish pianist, Vladislav Spillman. It's a powerful movie. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix streaming. Watch it. Don't waste your time on lesser films. Watch stuff like this. In this film, he portrays somebody who's a Holocaust survivor who lived with real fear, real hunger, real poverty, and he didn't just want to pretend, he wanted to feel. And so he went to great extremes preparing for that role. Do you know how tall this guy is? He's six foot five. That's tall, all right? He went on a crash diet to experience the kind of hunger that Spillman would have experienced as a Holocaust survivor. At his lightest, 
At 6'5", he got down to 130 pounds. I'm 5'6", and I'm not even 130 pounds. So you can imagine just how emaciated he got. He sold his apartment in New York. He sold his car. He put everything else in storage, packed two suitcases and a keyboard, and moved to Europe to live on the streets so he could find some place to live. At the director's insistence, he practiced piano for four hours a day to pretend to be a pianist. He practiced so much for the fingering that after a while he could actually play Chopin. That's commitment. Here's what he said about the intensity of that experience. There's an emptiness that comes with really starving that I hadn't experienced. I couldn't have acted that without knowing it. I've experienced loss. I've experienced sadness in my life, but I didn't know the desperation that comes with hunger. I don't like to suffer, but somehow I have to find a greater connection to the material. I just want to feel that I'm being honest. It's a powerful statement. I love that he could honestly say, I don't like to suffer, but if I'm to understand suffering, I can't do it in a theoretical classroom. I can't do it through books because when I project it, there will be nothing of substance there. To understand and portray suffering, I must experience suffering. It took him a year and a half to return to sanity after that intense experience. That's how fully immersed he was in it. He didn't have the right relationship with food for a year and a half because he was so used to what it felt like to be deprived of it. He said during those years, those months filming, he would spend an hour and a half a day just sitting and thinking about food. That's what hungry people do. They spend a good part of their day just dreaming about all the stuff they'd like to eat that they can't eat. And I just can't help but wonder, what would our experience of following Christ be like if we had that measure of commitment to the pursuit of him? What would it look like if we decided to follow Jesus with that totality of commitment, invest ourselves in it? To cease with our but-first conditions. To stop saying, you know, before I get serious about this, there's some stuff I've got to chase down. What if we said to him today, if that's what following you looks like, let me give it a go. Let me try it. Because if you do, there will be things you will see and understand and experience that for you right now in the simulator are only theory. They're ideas. They don't strike. You can sit next to somebody in church and you're like, why are they crying? And I mean, I'm not, you're not judging them. It's a genuine mystery. I just heard the same words. I don't understand why you're crying over this. It's because they're in a very different place, maybe, than you are when it comes to this stuff. That you've heard ideas, but they're hearing their life. And that's the journey which God is inviting you on. There is no other journey. That's the only one available. I want to invite you lovingly but firmly 
to hear the truth of the invitation Jesus makes. People who've lost a limb, they talk about something called a phantom limb. Where even though they don't have an arm, they swear it's still there. They could feel it. In fact, I'll even say, my arm was itching, and that's crazy because I don't have an arm. And I wonder if for some of us, our faith is not something like that. Back in high school, back in college, there really was something there. A real faith we could talk about. I saw him. I talked with him. I spent time with him. He was important. He framed my decisions. He was everything to me. But then how many years has it been since that faith was nurtured? It was central to your pursuits. It was everything. And could it be for some of us that our faith, our relationship with God is like a limb that's been amputated. You still feel the tingles, the itches of a phantom limb, but when you reach up to scratch that itch on your nose, you're like, oh yeah, there really isn't an arm there. And I wonder if that's what sometimes we're discovering, is that we have a faith that is only a memory. It's not there anymore. And when life happens and we reach up to use it, to lean on it, it's no longer there, it's missing. And we think, man, there was a time when I would have gotten through this because I had a relationship with God. But how long has it been? How long has it been? So I want to encourage you and challenge you not to live your adult life on a teenager's faith, not to coast on memories of when you were close to God, but listen to the invitation and accept it to be close to God today, to reframe how you understand this journey and to put everything in, slide all the chips to the center of the table and then experience everything you're supposed to experience in this. Get out of the simulator. Put some real money down. Take it off for a spin. See what happens. I think that's one of the ways that God's going to work in our church this year. So many of you We'll get out of the simulator and put everything on the, lead, on the line right there. I want to encourage you to bow with me for a minute. <clears throat> you know, the vast majority of the, the messages I deliver here are digging very deep into the text itself. And so I want you to know I'm still very committed to that. But today I just felt very convicted to zoom out a little bit and look at the actual logic of what Jesus is saying, why being totally committed matters so much to him. And it mattered so much to Jesus because it's the only way we're going to lay hold of the life he's offering. It doesn't work any other way. And I'm glad that he's honest and courageous. I'm glad that he doesn't trick us or bait and switch us and get us in the door only to hit us with the price tag later. He gives it to us straight, right at the door. If you're going to come in here, leave everything else at the door. Come empty-handed. I will fill your hands to overflowing. But don't try to carry that old life in and ask for the new one. It doesn't work. And so I want to be faithful to Christ by giving it to you straight in the same way. Just say, this year I think God has wonderful things in store for you spiritually, but you will not lay a hold of them unless you empty your hands first. 
that dream you've been nurturing, that ambition you have, what if God said, lay it down and never pick it up? Would God still be enough? I think you would find, if you took him up on that, that he would be more than enough. But you won't know it until you let go. So enough of me describing to you. Let's spend some time just getting before God and having some time with him. If there's something you need to hand over, hand it over. Empty your hands. And then ask him to pull you with him on this journey. If you reflect on the rest of your life, I'll bet that in every area where you've experienced significant change, you poured all of yourself into that pursuit. I believe what God wants to invite us as a church into this year is to pour the best of ourselves into the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Try it, even for one year. Everything you have, nothing held in reserve. And watch and see what he would do with that. I think you would be blown away by how much he exceeds your expectations. The way that he affects your life. If that's a commitment you want to make, then I'm going to ask you in faith to make that commitment in prayer this morning. Why don't you just pray that right now in your heart, in your own words. Jesus, I accept the invitation. I want to be sold out for you this year. I want to pursue you with total commitment. Help me. Let's pray that now. Let's pray together. God, we confess that for some of us, we feel like our lives are a story not worth finishing. We're losing interest. Just pray, God, that you would take hearts that are in that place and draw them in closer and deeper with you. Pull us out of the simulator that we might be living in. Pull us into the real world where to gain is to gain everything. To lose is to lose everything. Where things really happen. Where important things are a daily occurrence. Where we're not just watching a show or playing a game, but we are living and fighting and moving with you. Give us courage to shut off the game and start walking. I pray that you would be most profoundly touching those who are right now the farthest from you. Just pull our hearts towards you. and Give us the faith to accept your invitation in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.